Abandonment can be, we talked about that emotional neglect when raised by, by nannies or, or relatives. Um, can that trigger an ab abandonment trauma? It doesn't really matter uh, what, what the background is. It's more to be really respectful and to understand what this person is about. It's, it's really important to take the time to understand this person and before you start to, to, to treat them. Hi, I'm Jan. I'm the founder and manager of Paracelsus Recovery. And I'm sitting here with uh, Tilo Beck, our lead psychiatrist, uh, since the very first day, uh, 10 years ago now, uh, we've been working uh, together. Um, Tilo, you, um, you've been working uh, with us all this time with a variety of clients. Um, what's uh, particular about Paracelsus Recovery is that our clientele is normally from a uh, wealthy, ultra high net worth uh, uh, background, often or sometimes also with a background of public exposure, uh, celebrities uh, and so on. Um, and let's call it your other jobs. Uh, the, the work you do is uh, in, at a nonprofit organization where you're also a lead psychiatrist working with uh, uh, people from the, let's say, the other side of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, um, I think we both found that. Uh, quite intriguing uh, from the very beginning for my initial uh, conversations back then. Um, and I would like to talk to you a bit uh, today about um, culturally competent care for uh, particularly the demographic uh, we work with at Paracelsus Recovery. Um, but let me start off with, um, with asking you, do, when you compare your work here and at, the, uh, at Arut, the nonprofit organization, do you see commonalities in, in the clientele, the struggles, the therapeutic approaches that work? That's a very interesting question. I think what I've learned is that on both ends, we have to deal with a stigmatized population, with people who have stigma, um, uh, wealthy people um, are isolated in our society in a way, and they um, have don't have in, in certain aspects, they don't have the same possibilities as regular people have, so to speak. Um, we often have to deal with um, emotionally deprived people who um, never had the chance to grow up as we would say a normal person would and, uh, and don't are very hesitant to uh, have social contacts with other people who, because you never know whether you, uh, whether people really like you because of you, the person you are, or whether they uh, are just with you because you have the money, right? And um, so um, it's from different angles, but uh, we have to deal with, uh, well, yeah people in difficult situations and um, it's not as easy to be wealthy. That's what I have learned mm -hmm. and uh, it can cause a lot of harm. So what I, I read between the lines there is so there's a, an aspect of loneliness and trust issues that are maybe more uh, uh, present in, in that, in the wealthy demographic than uh, in the overall population. Very much so. And um, it's not only about social isolation, it's also when we look at the medical care, what the, these uh, people have. And um, 
what we often see is that they are badly treated and that they uh, medically, because they don't dare to go to a regular hospital for treatment or to regular doctors. They end up with some, I don't know, some treatments that are not coordinated and um, on and off. And um, so we often see very badly um, organized treatments or, or insufficient treatments. But uh, the key word comes to mind or key phrase, uh, doctor shopping. Right, that uh, um, uh, we see sometimes with a with a very wealthy clientele because they they have the possibility to to uh, access uh, expertise from from all over the world, but uh, sometimes when they I know don't like the experience or or, or don't like what they hear, um, that they can just move on uh, to another doctor and maybe get another opinion altogether. Also, second opinions is a is an economic matter. Right? Most people don't get second or third opinions um, when they get a diagnosis. Um, but a uh, wealthy clientele often does, again, because of the trust issues as well. And then they get very confusing messages. And the treatments are not ended and, and treatments are started and then interrupted or a doctor is changed. Um, so we really often see uh, people who are badly medicated and, and uh, or hardly medicated and um, where we have to start from the scratch. Where sometimes conditions already chronified to a degree where where they shouldn't be. Yes, uh, you wouldn't think uh, mm -hmm. that it would be that way. Right? Mm -hmm. What other factors do you feel? Um, I specifically, do you see, so we talked about loneliness, uh, trust issues to some degree, uh, emotional deprivation um, uh, that you see as a commonality uh, between you know people on both sides of the uh, socioeconomic spectrum. Um, let's talk about the emotional deprivation. Why? What is that? Um, what are the implications, and why is that specifically happening in a in a wealthy clientele? Where we, you know, as an outsider, you wouldn't expect that. I think I see that on two levels. One level is the, the so, so to speak, the founder generations who built wealth and um, often end up in an isolated situation afterwards because they are on the top of the pyramid and. Um, have a trust issues there, and um, or and the, the other problem is then the the following generations, the 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 children of these founders or the second generation, who grow up in in difficult situations, um, frequently uh, being left on their own, parents traveling, and they grow up with nannies managing their. Um, everything and um, and just never get the emotional support or the the, the care the, the emotional care they they would deserve as children mm -hmm. and that are important for healthy psychological development uh, uh, um, do we have any uh, tips all things equal Im imagine somebody who uh, you know let's say two parents very busy running uh, the family business uh, political and social uh, uh, duties or engagements, um, and often they want the very best for the children. So they hire, you know, teachers, they hire uh, nannies. Um, uh, elite boarding schools are often a, a, a topic. Uh, what would be the advice to somebody, um, you know, to parents like that? Um, because often it's not an option to just say, okay, now we have children and we need to drop our duties because it's a massive responsibility. Often we have clients, you know, have hundreds of thousands of employees. Uh, and there's an impact if they don't show up to work. So is there any 
what would you say to, I mean, to them? That's what we have learned over time, uh, having these family weekends where we usually invite family members uh, to join in and to to think about what could be changed for the family system. And um, I think it's about starting a, a dialogue and, and, and starting to, to, to consciously meet each other again and not just to live in some ways uh, on different paths and, and um, to really choose to be a family and, and to have time together. And, and um, what they, some people call this quality time, but just... Yeah, that actually just came to mind. Uh, could, could you say that actually there, like in many things in life, quality is more important than quantity. So even if, uh, you know, let's say uh, one or both parents travel frequently to different uh, places in the world and don't have that much time to spend at home. Um, but the time they do have, um, they should really be devoted, dedicated to, to the children to spend quality time, attention and so on. And often it has to be practiced how to do these conversations then, how to talk to each other and how uh, to get this quality time together and um, how to dialogue in a constructive way. And um, sounds trivial, but it's not at all. And, um, and, and there is much to be done, I think. Especially when when a, a certain dynamic has been in the making for many years, right? Living parallel lives or not feeling seen by by each other, by the parents, by the partner. Um, so people feel unhappy, they feel something's missing, uh, but then it always takes, well, at least two or the whole family to actually say, okay, we need to change something. We are ready to take the time, the emotional investment, and also in a way being vulnerable, right? Because uh, often, especially when you run <laughs> an international corporation or a whole political office, uh, your everyday role is actually to kind of carry a bit of a shield around you, uh, not to appear vulnerable. And maybe it's hard to, to take that off when you, when, when you come home. And to create a space where you really interact with each other and where, where you listen to each other and respect each other. Very precious time, actually. And, um, the, but that has to be practiced. And mm -hmm. um, let's talk a moment about affluent neglect, a term that uh, sometimes pops up. Uh, I don't think it has a clear definition, um, but again, something that's interesting to compare because there is neglect uh, that is more common on, on both sides, again, of the uh, socioeconomic uh, spectrum, there's some commonalities. Um, neglect in, in, a, in, a, in a, a low income uh, a family or household or, you know, single parenting, uh, struggling to pay the bills um, is in a way more intuitively graspable. Um, but what about affluent neglect? Neglect in a in a um, you know wealthy family, wealthy household. What what are the parameters? Part uh, we, so we talked about lack of time and attention. What other factors can play a role in you know? I think it's a lot about lack of structure as well. So everything is possible and, and, and you don't have, you would not have to do anything actually if you don't want to. And so the, we often see these people feeling lost uh, and, and just not knowing what to do with their lives because they, 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 have, they don't have the direction and don't, don't know for what values they should invest themselves. And, 
and because it it's all left open in a way and uh and that's where we often work at to to get a sort of a that direction into into the life of these people mm-hmm. um and I think what what you're talking about is particularly for for the next generations uh, kind of growing up in a significant wealth sometimes there's a trust fund sometimes there's yeah not a clear yeah you don't have to work and uh, I think it, it's it's very natural for kids or teenagers if they don't have to adhere to a structure well uh, well they don't <laughs> um so you can get lost in that and we we know that that uh, how structure is you know the importance of structure in for mental health, particularly mental health for recovery. To find your own values, to find what you want to live for mm-hmm. and um, not to, uh, I think there's a lot of pressure often from the the parents, from the fathers, whoever is in charge in the family. Um, and and at the, the second generation, they, they ask themselves, well, I don't want to get become a copy of my my my, my parents. I, I want to go my own way. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. way would that be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we have a few interesting topics uh, uh, that we just scratch the surface on. So um, one is lack of structure, often because of economic possibilities, not the necessity, but then getting lost and not really having a purpose. Basically summarizing, having a reason to get out of bed in the morning, right? And uh, and then uh, looking forward to the day. Um, purpose we know is super important. Um, but and then you have possibly the, the opposite, and we see that too is is uh, kind of the limiting factor. So the expectation of pressures from you know the previous generation, from from the parents, um, kind of limiting factors with regards to yeah you sh- sh- you know the expectation that you follow in the footsteps that you take over the helm of the family company at some point. Uh, so what should you study? Maybe you want to study art, but actually you know the parents want you to start uh, to study economics or, or law. Um, but also with regard to who you are approved to to uh, entangle with as friends or romantic partners. Um, so on one side, we have this lack of structure and kind of too much freedom. And on the other side, we have uh, these stringent limitations that often are not experienced as much by the, the average. Or overwhelming expectations from the, the first generation, from the parents mm-hmm. to what these children should do or what they should be able to do. Yeah, absolutely paralyzing sometimes and also then creating resistance and um, as a coping mechanism. Yes. And and trying and and saying, no, 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 this is not possible. I I don't, I don't, I can't do that or I don't want that. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. So um, because I'd always imagine when, uh, yeah, when you grew up basically in the shadow of you know the achievements of your parents and it's probably not always only in family business but let's say you're the you know son or daughter of a of a of a world leader head of state or or, or a successful famous entertainer um you will always be the son or daughter of so and so and and uh, it's it takes more it's more difficult to kind of feel like you're a person in, in, in your own right and especially when you then everybody says, "Oh, your, your father is so and so, and or your mother, and and uh, and it, uh, all these achievements are praised." Um, what does that do to to your self esteem as as a kid, as a teenager? I think that it's difficult, and under these circumstances, to to develop a sort of a self, a feeling of self worth in a way. Um, so, what's my strengths? What's what what I'm good for? 
um, uh, what what am I as a person, and and who am I, and um, uh, so we often that's what we often do here. Also with these uh, second generation, the children, um, uh, trying to give them a new direction, trying to give them. Um, a new understanding what they could do in their lives. We work a lot with uh, career counselors and trying to um, support them to to find their own path, which is not that easy, really. And then also, I mean, developing that is one thing, but then going back, they're still part of a, of, of a group and often is, you know, kind of fam family dynasty, uh, friends, advisors, uh, family members, and so on. Uh, it must be really tough to kind of break through that from a, yeah, from a self-esteem. Uh, it definitely feels overwhelming and uh, difficult to 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 break free of and and to dare to 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 go your own way and it's that's can be scary. So that overwhelming feeling. Uh, let's talk a bit about how we see um, members of such families how we see them coping in, uh, you know, maybe not so healthy ways um, that eventually send down, you know, uh, the path of, uh, of seeking treatment or therapy. How, how do you deal with that when you're uh, 10, 15 years old uh, or coming of age uh, and you're always the son or daughter of? I think first of all, you feel the pressure. Um, uh, so to, to be as good or um, even better than uh, the person you're compared with. And that creates a lot of pressure and uh, not to to fail and to be perfect, right? And, um, and I think then the question is, how do people deal with pressure? And there's different ways to cope with that. Is that uh, possibly a reason why uh, uh, um, all things equal, um, we see more uh, substance abuse issues in uh, at both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum versus the the general population. Is that definitely? I, I think um, substance use is a coping strategy, right? Uh, to either to feel better or to deal with overwhelming stress or uh, other uncomfortable feelings or emotions or um, or thoughts and. Um, so we see that on both ends, for sure. Um, let's maybe we jump it a bit back and forward. Um, but one particular thing I'd, I'd be interested in, and I've been asked a lot, is uh, in many of these international, uh, you know, wealthy families, um, schooling is uh, is a big topic. Um, often with the best intentions, the the parents um, want the kids to have the you know. A better uh, education than they were able to, to enjoy themselves, and and there's you know an offering of of well elite um, academically you know quite quite rep, uh, reputational boarding schools around the world. But what what does it do? Again, all things equal, the different characters, and um, um, but what are the risk factors? Let's say it that way. Um, when uh, when a kid goes to a boarding school and what difference does does the age make? Because there's, there used to be early boarding, which is now more and more uh, not so popular anymore, I think. But still, it's uh, what does it do to a 12-year-old, 14-year-old to be away from home? 
I wouldn't generalize that because that's a very individual thing. Um, I've seen kids who really thrived and then who benefited from this sort of additional input or um, and, and grew uh, sort of uh, grew with it, and and others who really suffered and got lost and and didn't find their way there and uh, just suffered. So there's no one size fits all um, when it comes to awarding. So it really definitely depends, not. So. I, I think it's important to see how your child fares with it and and whether they get along with this uh, in this system. And so really, some of them enjoy it and and, and benefit from it. I, I reckon it can also be nice to step out a bit of uh, of certain family dynamics or a certain you know exposed environment. Um, uh, yeah, into a bit your own world where you can actually develop your independent character. It can be enriched environment with uh, important new inputs and uh, learning fields. So I wouldn't, I really wouldn't generalize that. But would you would you agree then that um, that it's important to uh, I know maybe maybe uh, have a bit of a pre-assessment in a way to see uh, if, if if a kid could be particularly vulnerable to the boarding school and to particularly pay attention the first you know, weeks or months, how, how somebody is faring, to to filter out, you know, somebody would really, really possibly get damaged. It's, it's good to check in regularly and to see how how the kids are doing. And it's, it's about how they feel at boarding school, but, but then again, what, what's also important is that they have the feeling that they can come back to a healthy family environment. So to to avoid a, uh, an experience of abandonment, I think that's that's crucial, right? Uh, I once uh, I heard about a concept uh, called a boarding school syndrome um, um, when I uh, attended a, a lecture on uh, um, on mental health of uh, boarding school kids and. Um, uh, the notion was a combination of abandonment trauma and imprisonment trauma, kind of limiting freedom, because some of these boarding schools can be quite, yeah, quite it's, structured. It's how good is the school and, and, and what, what's the family sort of providing? Uh, I think if children know there's a family back home where I'm looking forward to come back to and that, 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 that is waiting for me and and looking forward to big, me coming big back. Big difference, yeah. right? And um, that helps a lot. And not feel like, you know, kind of pushed Being away to a school, of, go away. You're kind yeah. of uncomfortable yeah. or you're a nuisance. And we're actually happy for you to be away. Is that that, right. that can trigger an abandonment issues right. that can sometimes pull, go through a lifetime uh, as an adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so abandonment can be, we, we talked about that emotional neglect uh, when raised by by nannies or, or relatives um, can that trigger an ab abandonment trauma um, absolutely absolutely um, children who grow up in, in a family where they feel isolated and and left alone that that is um, severe trauma I think that's sort of pro yeah, prolonged trauma, chronic trauma. And um, that's what we afterwards uh, see as um, complex trauma. Mm -hmm. With all the the implications it has, right, on, on various uh, mood disorders, uh, self-medication and so on, that we then 
clinically, uh, therapeutically try to untangle, but it can often kind of uh, be traced back to uh, to early childhood or to generally to, 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 to growing up uh, experiences. In, in such difficult circumstances and challenging circumstances where children are not seen and heard by the family and um, grow up on their own, right? And um, when we talk about mental health and wealth, the intersection or the implications of significant wealth on, on mental health, um, there's a few other uh, notions that, um, that, well, we seem to come across regularly and, and, and people uh, ask about. Uh, one of them is uh, boredom. We talked about that a bit in a sense of lack of structure, um, but boredom maybe on a more uh, meta level. Um, what does significant wealth do? So if you can basically fulfill most of material wishes um, uh, without having to, you know, save for it, so without having to, without feeling possibly guilty if you spend money on something and then, you know, you just leave it on the side, you don't uh, enjoy it. Um, that can lead to significant boredom. It's like, what do I do with my life? I um, you know, what brings me pleasure is, is, I guess, a different question uh, when you have a lot of time on your hands uh, and a lot of buying power. Well, I think it's, that's very similar with um, what you experience when you use substances. Um, it's just stimulation for without much of a, a purpose or, or, a, or it's not, you wouldn't get any result that would be of purpose of that. And, and that's frustrating, right? So it's just um, spending, passing time and, um, and not really satisfying. And it's, it's frustrating. And uh, so you have to do more and more and more, but you wouldn't feel really um, good about it. And um, that's, that's what we often see. That's not the way people want to live, actually. Uh, we all human beings have the need to have a purpose, I think. And, um, and that's underestimated, I think. Uh, I, I think it's, it's ironic because in a, in a way, the, you know, um, the, the entertainment world, the media world, it's kind of, um, it's idealized, you know, just to have a, a life of leisure, you can chat around the world, you can shop whatever you like, you can attend parties and uh, and do anything at your women, you don't have responsibility to show up uh, for work. And in a way that seems to be idealized ever since at least movies, uh, you know, uh, exist and now with social media and so on. Um, and in a way it's ironic because um, it seems to me that a lot of people who then you know, get into that lifestyle or are born into that uh, lifestyle with a lot of possibilities, uh, they they don't know. They, nobody tells them. Nobody teaches them how important you know purpose, structure, uh, and also work is, and also um, adversity and you know hardship and stressful times as we all experience. When you know at some point we have to get a job to pay our bills, we have to uh, pass exams at school and so on. Um, that all forms us in a way. And when we see through a difficult period um, um, or event, then uh, we feel fulfilled, we feel a sense of achievement. Um, but it seems to be, is it human nature or is it more 
kind of conditioning because of these movies and the social media and so on that uh, if we're not told and we have the possibilities, we tend to just let things go because it brings us pleasure. What does it have to do with it? I, I think somehow it's an illusion. We might we always carry with us the the thinking that paradise would be to be happy all the time and um, to have all needs fulfilled. But I think if you think about this, this is terribly boring. If it's always like perfect and you're always happy, what is life about then? Uh, I mean, we need to have this uh, fluctuating uh, moods and um, that we need to have times where we feel better and others where we suffer maybe or go through hardship. And, and that's part of life. And um, life can't be just uh, on the happen on the happy signs mm -hmm. that that would be terrible I think. Mm -hmm. but intuitively um and i guess it comes a bit with life experience to to be able to make that statement and uh, uh, and, and feel it um because intuitively naturally i think and again especially for you know uh, younger people um that seeking of happiness and often confusion of happiness and pleasure and avoiding pain and discomfort seems to be kind of an intuitive way uh, to go. Well, I, I think it's basically it's more um, uh, avoid that, that's uh, avoiding the the true the core or the the essence of life and 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 trying to lead a life that doesn't come with challenges and um, but then people I think realize quite quickly that there's something missing. We need to have challenges and we need to um, have the opportunity to grow and, and to, to, to practice, to learn. And that only comes when we also challenge ourselves. And um, Possibly in a way, ironically, it's uh, because when somebody has a you know, material privilege to, 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 to seek such a, a lifestyle, um, the problems come automatically, right? Um, and, uh, and that's why also why, why if we see clients coming, coming through our door, um, often from, from the outside or the out group or people who are not, uh, you know, living with, uh, that significant wealth, um, there's often a misconception that, uh, yeah, money buys happiness. And if you can afford everything, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, when it is. Money is not the answer and money is not the solution. It, it can be a problem on that way, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about, um, culturally competent care or how as uh, clinicians, yourself as a psychiatrist, we, you, you know, here we work with teams of uh, uh, psychologists, counselors, uh, various people who, who, who help uh, a client, a patient heal. Um, in how far the sp specific, um, you know, experience, modalities, um, mindset of the, of the, clinician matter uh, in order to be able to, to really provide the best possible care for that demographic. Question short, can any trained clinician equally provide, you know, the best possible care for, for anybody from anybody, uh, from anywhere in the socioeconomic spectrum, or do we need specific know-how or approaches, insights, experience with a wealthy clientele? I think experience helps to know the the environments that these people live in and to 
to understand the challenges and the, the problems that might come up with it, um, to, to, to know what they are talking about and um, where they're coming from, that helps. But I think m most important is to be, to be open and, and to be, um, to be open and to, to understand what client we have to work with here and, and whether this is from the wealth, super wealthy spectrum or from the other side, I don't, I don't think that makes much of a difference. Um, it's, it's about understanding the individual you, you're working with at the moment and, um, and f only intervene then when you really know what this person is about and what, and to, to have a bond with this person and to, to know together what, what you want to work on. And, and, um, I think for this process, it doesn't really matter, uh, what, what the background is. It's more to be really respectful and to, to be truly, um, interested and, 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 uh, to understand what this person is about sounds trivial, but I think in, in psychotherapy, often um, therapists uh, treat sort of a have this one size fits all approach that they think I have a method and I work with this method, mm -hmm. and the, the the client has to fit into the method in a way, um, and uh, that's what we have learned here. Uh, we we really try to design the treatment for every individual. Um, client anew and 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 sort of use different methods, different parts from from various methods, put them together, and according to the needs of the individual client. So it's it's really important to take the time to understand this person and before you start to to, mm. to treat them, mm. to understand their not just their psyche but also their their reality, their understanding of of uh, reality, which right. includes uh, dynamics in the, in, in the family, their environment, their view of themselves. Uh, right, to get the whole picture. And only then you can plan interventions or um, or, or come up with uh, suggestions for, for therapy. Mm. You, we started out by uh, uh, you saying that, um, you know, it's a stigmatized uh, population uh, in a way. Um, so, Stigma often comes with with shame, and uh, um, do we see with a with a with a wealthy clientele um, is is that a an a particular issue or is it with like like with everybody else? Um, and I'm asking it particularly because um, for some exposed individuals or families, um, you know, it can have rep reputational consequences if if they or a family member um, well struggles emotionally um, or more you know, significant consequences than you might have from somebody on the other side of the socioeconomic spectrum. I think the stigma is more the, the, the pressure you feel to, to fulfill a role. You, you might doubt yourself, whether you might be fit to, to live and, uh, knowing that people think that you must be happy and, and perfect. And, um, that's a lot of pressure. And, um, 
And behind all of that, asking yourself, well, can I really do that? And and, uh, and I think the stigma is the, the expectation to be on the top, right? And and to be the best and, and um, to have no problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so when uh, when you perceive this uh, as a, as an affected person and and you feel not up to it, uh, that can create a significant you know, gap, dissonance, a lot of pressure and 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 suffering and and um, hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, when working therapeutic or engaging therapeutically um, with a with a client who who knows that's you know they uh, you're a psychiatrist uh, we, we're clinicians um, and they know what what they've achieved and how we might perceive them um, that the therapeutic dynamic the the trust that has to be built is that different is it more challenging or is it similar to uh, you know providing therapy or engaging in a therapeutic process with somebody from a, a different socioeconomic group. I, I think in, in in many ways it's very similar. It's the same process to uh, to open up to somebody and to to have enough trust to open up. Uh, so it, you have to build that trust first and um, and take the time to do that. And and um, that's what we do here. We, we we really take a lot as much time as it takes to to get to that point before we start doing therapy, as I said before, and. Um, so I think that's a general principle in psychotherapy. That's um, so for a for a patient to to feel heard and seen and and respected for their uh, reality give, and they give every single uh, client we have here the space and the time to um, to express themselves and and to to share with us and 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 then to. To develop um, hypotheses and, and 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 theories, what what uh, what should be done? Mm-hmm. You mentioned time a lot. Um, uh, it seems that time for for a, you know productive uh, therapeutic process is uh, is in a way of the essence. Um, and time is a you know time is money is something we often hear. It's uh, you know in the, in a in a public health sector particularly. Um, um, there's a certain amount of you know, capacity of, of, of therapists and also what insurances or the state uh, pays for. Um, do you feel that um, that uh, there, there's that, I don't, that's an issue that uh, when uh, when you have you know one session a week or one session every two weeks, forty five minutes, um, um, it, does it just take? longer to get to that spot or is it even impossible to get to a certain point uh, therapeutically compared to when you have you know several interactions uh, therapeutic interactions a week well my feeling what, what I've experienced in 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 this setting here um, that we see amazing progress with this intensive approach where we work as a coordinated team on 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 different levels in the same direction and um, that we have if that we see effects um, we wouldn't see in a regular treatment setting 
not as quickly and, and maybe some of them not at all. Mm. Um, because I, I think we can reach the, the, the client on all these different levels and, and, and they all, um, they all interact. And, um, so it, that, that results in a, in a much more, um, much greater effect in the end. So, um, Working as a team, uh, also uh, different individuals have um, you know a bit different approach, different insight, maybe different um, 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 accessibility uh, to client-specific uh, issues, and then complementing that, coordinating that together, uh, it, it all adds up. Faster, yeah, it all adds up, and mm -hmm. um, um, so we get much amazing. You see amazing effects out of this. Um, coordinated approach and um, it all adds up one to the other and um, so the one and one results in more than two more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that uh, experience to work in you know this uh, uh, environment approach uh, as a clinician uh, um, is that very different for you than uh, you know when you work one-on-one um, -on -one in you know therapeutically uh, with a client is uh, like, how do you compare the experience? It's just. I think it's, it's much a broader view we can, we, we can take on the, on the client. And uh, because uh, all the, the people working here in the team, they have their own expertise and they, they have different angles. And when we share this all together, uh, we get much better understanding of the client and we can um, intervene in, in a much more better informed way. And uh, so we, we have results we, we wouldn't get otherwise. That, that's really amazing to see. And uh, it seems to me, and uh, I'm interested in your thoughts uh, there as well, is uh, in between therapeutic sessions in this intensive treatment uh, uh, program, um, there is other treatment modalities that help to, you know, integrate, to, to, to reflect, also to relax. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of all uh, uh, carefully choreographed. Um, um, for somebody who doesn't, you uh, know, uh, have access to, to an uh, intense treatment environment uh, or coordinated treatment environment like that, um, do you feel that there's something that um, could be done easily uh, for people to benefit more in, in psychotherapy, let's say if one session today, if another session in one week or two weeks, like the the, the in betweens, the the integration, the the carrying forward of what comes out of the therapeutic session when you just walk out of the you know the psychiatrist's office and you're on your own again. I think that's what we do regular. I will call it regular psychotherapy. We try to give homework uh, to to sort of things to to practice or to think about between sessions um, but still and still it's um it's a much more intense setting we can create here where we stimulate the client constantly and and also give enough time to process but it's really um, individually adapted and um, to get the best result mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a uh, I just imagine if you know somebody engages in, in, in psychotherapy or seeks uh, psychotherapy, they're not in a good place, uh, at least initially. Um, and uh, when then on your own and you get homework and you, you know, should practice, but you feel really down and don't have the energy, 
Um, it's much harder than if you have somebody who just, you know, kind of tries to motivate you or, uh, or if you have a structured program. Or a setting that holds. And um, I think that's what we see here. Um, and, and the feedback we get from the clients that they really feel at home and it's like being in a in a family and they feel cared for and that creates the environment where people can learn and and grow mm-hmm. um so i think that's a very important aspect mm-hmm. to to give our clients this feeling to to be in a safe place and and to be cared for especially in those first weeks uh of of, of any treatment that can be quite uh painful and tiresome um so being feeling left alone in between therapeutic sessions can be quite tough yeah uh, absolutely and uh, so that's really one of the key points i think of this treatment approach that that we use every single moment to um to support the client on 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 his or her journey and um and um are able to adapt the treatment and 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 use yeah every every single second for this purpose. Um, maybe last but not least, um, let's talk about the importance of uh, family and um, um, let's say peer network, but uh, particularly family. Uh, when when somebody goes to a to, to a treatment, to a clinic, uh, such a such as here at Paracelsus Recovery, they leave their home environment, they engage in quite an intense journey, often very transformational, um, and the family stays at home. Um, you know, maybe they communicate, um, but they don't really embark on the same journey. Can that? Uh, what are the risks? You know, for you know, when when a, when a client goes back home, um, how, how how do we best? Uh, yeah, mitigate that possible gap and uh, and what can be done um if yeah if family members are not really willing to, uh, to engage which we sometimes see as well i think one way how we deal with it is uh with these family weekends that we invite family members in and share the 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 work that has been done and the progress that has been done and and um, anticipate together and and look forward and think uh, what can every single family member do to support the client or, and also to to grow as a family and to give them a new um, a new direction here as well and I think that's really important and and um, must be considered. Um, that's why we also offer um, aftercare to to sort of. Um, support this process after end of the program to to send somebody home with the client to to help to yeah that integration can be almost as important as the the treatment experience itself right to do it. otherwise it, the the progress might be challenged or um uh, and uh, and and frustrating because it, it's not supported back home right mm-hmm. So that that support from back home. So uh, part of it probably comes from, um, you know, not understanding what's what's going on or the the, the journey a family member has uh, has been on, um, and and we can mitigate that by involving them with educational work, with family therapy, uh, and so on. 
Um, but sometimes we also see clients uh, who come you know, from a more dysfunctional family where a lot of the family dynamics and problems are projected onto one individual. And it's difficult to engage um, you know, the, the family on a, let's say, productive level for, um, for that uh, uh, patient's return home. Um, what do we do then when we realize that um, yeah, there's only so, so far we, c we can get with the family? First of all, we try to get the family on board and to, to make it their um, mutual journey. And um, if this doesn't work, then I think we have to strategize with the client how they can go on their own journey and um, and have their own life and um, care for themselves. And, and um, without the support of the family in that way and um, how to, to, to then to, to draw boundaries as well and um, to protect themselves, so to speak. That's, um, we're running out of time soon, but uh, you mentioned boundaries. So one thing I would like to touch upon how do you hold boundaries if your father is, you know, this uber uh, successful, powerful, um, sometimes very dominant uh, uh, figure and you financially depend on them, your family name, your reputation, everything is kind of dependent or entangled with, uh, with the patriarch. That's some, something we sometimes see. What, what do we advise to somebody with regard to boundaries? I think there's not much you can advise in that way. It's about... Um, growing into a, another role and that that takes time as well and and to learn that um, you yourself are a valuable person and to to develop self-compassion and to be proud of yourself as the person you are and totally realizing that you will never be the same success as your father might be but still be proud of yourself or maybe realizing that uh, you know success is relative, right? It's uh, it doesn't necessarily make you happier or better person if you achieve the same you know material or Absolutely. career success, but that uh, it's very individual and to find that your own purpose and to uh, be proud of that mm -hmm. and to say, well, I, I might be not the same, I, I might not go the same way as my father or my mother did, but. Uh, but my way is, is still valuable. It's and, not less valuable. Uh, no. Yeah, I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah self-compassion, self-respect, which also translates into self-esteem. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, based on that, one can nurture purpose um, very much. Well, thank you, Thilo. That was a very interesting exchange. Okay, thank you for having me. And um, uh, it was interesting to, to discuss. Mm -hmm.